0: Good morning! Happy Easter! This is the Sunday Money Show here on News Talk 1010. Over the course of this hour, financial opinions, recommendations expressed in the show solely those of the commentator, not necessarily those of Hollis Wealth, News Talk 1010, or Bell Media. Hollis Wealth, a division of Industrial Alliance Securities, Inc., member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund, and the Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada. Alan Small Financial Group is a personal trade name of Alan Small, and you're asked to Please consult your investment advisor for financial advice. Alan, good morning. Welcome in. Good morning. Happy Easter. Happy Easter to you too. It is great to have you here. For any listeners new to our show, why don't you introduce them to you, uh, Alan Small Financial Group, and what we like to talk about as the Alan Small difference.
1: Great. Uh, my name is Alan Small. I'm the Senior Investment Advisor of the Alan Small Financial Group, which is part of Hollis Wealth. Uh, Simply put, we are a full service investment firm. I provide advice, I am the guide to try and get my individual investors to reach their financial goals and those goals can be obtained through investment, investment in mutual funds, stocks, bonds, preferred shares, the full gamut of, uh, of investment selection. And the Alan Small difference I guess comes into play with respect to what investors tell me that they like from our business and, and the two things that always stick out is that constant contact, we like to be in, our, in contact with our our clients on a regular basis, perhaps a general email talking about the markets, or perhaps talking about, you know, an IPO that's come to market, or maybe it's more specific to make a change in your portfolio, uh, to recommend selling or buying something, etc. And then monitoring your portfolios on a regular basis. And uh, the second thing people like to talk about, or at least tell me they like about the Allen Small Financial Group, is we build portfolios specifically tailored to the individual investors sitting across the table from us, very different than many institutions that have more of a cookie cutter approach. They have their portfolios already created and they just sort of slot you in to a medium or high or low risk portfolio. And it's already built for the masses versus being built specifically for the person that is about to buy it. So I think those two things I find the most, uh, I guess, commentary on those two things the most that that when I meet people. And I know for
0: clients, one of the things that they like most is expanding on that communication is your availability to them. I mean, you've never forgotten that This is their money. This is their retirement fund. This money is vitally, vitally important to them. And respecting that, you make yourself available for whatever their questions are to make sure that they're happy, that they're
1: content, and they're in complete control and understanding of where their money is headed. And that's a great point because I always talk to my clients and say, you know, uh, conversation is, is two ways and a lot of times you know when I'm contacting my clients every few weeks every five to six weeks or six to eight weeks you know there's still a gap there and what I like to tell clients is if you have a question if you saw something on TV didn't receive a statement have a, some sort of concern markets are down like they were at the end of last quarter don't wait for me to to call you or to send you a specific email get in touch with me I'm very good at answering all my emails all the phone calls that I get all the messages I receive because I want clients to know that we're always watching. We're watching the markets. We're watching your portfolio. So I always say to people, you know, conversation is, is a two-way street. If you have a question or a concern or anything, or you just want to say how great things are, give us a call. I'm there to answer any questions and help you the best I can.
0: Uh, you and I have talked about cannabis stocks a lot over the last-ish year or so. And I remember last October, it was kind of like Y2K, you know, the build-up to it, that things were going to change and that, you know, it would never be the same. And it kind of it, it fizzled. Nothing really changed. People that were excited by the whole concept remained excited. People that couldn't care less seemed to not care less. The beginning of this year, Alan, tough quarterly results, though, for those cannabis stocks. Quarterly results, so the, the stocks that we talk about most, uh, both ended up losses despite seeing increases in revenue. It's, it's, just a bizarre market.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. You know, some of these cannabis names, like Anafria, one of the I call the big three: Aurora Cannabis, Canopy Growth, and Afria, Those are the three, in my opinion, the, the bigger players in the space. And Afria reported earnings this past week, and uh, they their revenues grew over six hundred percent, like a crazy number. But at the same time, they actually reported a loss. So what does that tell you? Well, to me, that says that these names, even though they are the most established or the bigger names in the space, these names are still, they're growing, they're still in their infancy stage. And so, like many investment advisors out there, I've been hearing on radio and talk shows and and reading about, they're saying the same thing as me, that you have to be very careful when you buy into these names. Sure, a lot of these names will be around in three to five or 10 years from now or even longer, but which ones will they be? And that yeah, yeah. is the risk. Like very similar, as we always say, to the to the tech space uh, in the late 90s. A lot of those names, a lot of different players back then, many of them didn't survive. Many of them were swallowed up by bigger players. Many of them merged, et cetera, et cetera. And I think, you know, we're seeing that in the, in the marijuana or cannabis space as well. And don't be surprised going forward if the volatility continues, if the high revenues continue, but also the high uh, level of expenses continue as mm. well. And so look for these names to continue to, to report losses, till some point where obviously their businesses has become more mature, and I think you'll start to see some profitability there. But until then, these multiples that these stocks trade at are very, very high, and definitely if you own them, they're not for the faint of heart. U.S. survey surveys suggesting Americans are in favor of legalization. I'm wondering, does that bode
0: well for our sector up here, or is it just more competition? Because this isn't some kind of rare material. This is something that you and I could grow in our backyard if we chose to.
1: Yeah, and I think it's a kind of bit of both, you know, is this something positive for our our marijuana companies up here. I think it can be, obviously, if they can gain access to the U.S. markets, if they're allowed to, if the government allows them to, to go down to the U.S. and, and, and provide uh, their product to U.S. companies. I think that can work, but at the same time, like you said, there's also now more competition in that space, and I think more and more competition is coming online as we move forward. So I think, again, it just depends on the company. I know Tilray, another marijuana producer out West in Western Canada, I think, I know they've come out with some contracts down in the US and that caused at one point their stock to to go sky high from mm. just a few dollars all the way up to $300 a share. Well, today their stock trades somewhere around 50. So you can see the volatility there. So overall I gain, you just got to be very careful about these names and you know, maybe put a little bit of money, but I wouldn't I definitely wouldn't make it a core component yeah. of a portfolio at this and time. And
0: that's what I was going to ask you. How should investors approach the prospect of investing in the cannabis industry because I'm sure there are people out there who are, you know, there's gold in them, there're mountains and much like the gold rush, there's a lot of people who are going to come home
1: broke. Yeah, and I think you have to look at it as a higher risk investment, no doubt, probably the highest form of risk. And when you look at these stock, these stocks and their in their share prices, just take a look at a chart and you'll see what I mean. You have huge peaks and valleys and and that probably will continue for at least for the foreseeable future.
0: We're in the midst of earnings season at the minute, leading up to earnings seasons, investors were Getting really mixed signals on the health of the economy. Talk of an inverted yield curve had some people talking about possible coming recession. There's that word at the same time that market climbs getting close to record levels. Do you think we're seeing any clarity out there, or is it all kind of just moving in different directions?
1: Yeah, well, I hope there is you know a little more clarity now than perhaps a little before. You know, for a little while there, you had investors calling me up saying, "What's with this inverted yield curve and this recession mm. talk?" Can you talk about what that means? Yeah, so so an inverted yield curve basically means that normally the 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 curve interest rate curve when you you have a let's say a three month uh, GIC or bond. The interest paying on that bond or paid to investors for, for, for owning that bond would be, let's say, 2% or a lower interest rate than perhaps something that would be a 10-year bond rate or a 10-year government bond. So what had happened was, in this case, why it was called inverted was because the three-month rate was actually higher than the 10-year rate, which wow. doesn't make sense. You know, we're all used to seeing, you know, you make you know more money on a five-year term than you would make on a one-year term. A one-year GIC pays less than a five-year. Well, in this case, the 3 month was paying higher than the 10 year which normally doesn't happen and that kind of throws things out of whack the yield curve was inverted for a while it's been sort of flat so there wasn't much difference between let's say a 1 year and a 10 year but when the in- when the curve inverts that if you go back in history, tends to to be the, I guess, an indicator that a recession is coming maybe somewhere between 12 and 15 months from now. So people sort of started to panic and you had those individual investors who never looked at the bond market before, never looked at yield curves, didn't really know what it was all about, panicking and saying, they're talking about recession. Well. I think there's been a little clarity in that in that way over the past little while the the yield curve has steepened again the ten years is now a lot higher than the three month and you're seeing companies report good solid earnings and um you know I think all that recession talk is now a bit on the back burner. We're actually seeing or hearing that the opportunity or the 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 idea of maybe central banks lowering interest rates, which actually started to percolate a little bit mm-hmm. is now. A lot lower. The odds of that happening is a lot lower. Still, the odds of raising interest rates are not too high. So I think we're in that sweet spot right now, that Goldilocks type of you know not too hot, yeah. not too cold scenario. And I think that's great for investors and the stock market. And I think that's one of the reasons why the stock market has been going higher on a significant, uh, uh, significant basis. So what sectors or stocks do you like? And again, it, it's becoming. It's funny. I, I have a, a gentleman who, who works at my at my office, and and him and I sit there and we put our heads together. We try to figure out what's the the next latest and greatest investment to own. And I have to say we are finding it increasingly more difficult or increasingly more difficult to to look and find investments to buy. Things that were very cheap at the end of last year are all of a sudden showing to be a little bit proving to be a little bit more expensive Mm. or a lot expensive. And so not as many good quality names trading cheap right now as we once saw maybe three and a half, four months ago. So Difficult question to answer. I think investments right across in all sectors, you'll find in, I guess, names that could be cheap in the stock market. Bond market's still a little bit expensive. Yields are still very low. Individual investors don't want to go there. So I think right now, individual investors looking for different equities or stock or mutual fund positions that they can get into, or ETFs that they can get into that appear to be cheap, that hopefully will be the gainers of tomorrow. And And I think, again, you can go right across different sectors.
0: Going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about, is it really getting that much harder to find market bargains? When we come back, I want to ask you, you know, it is maybe a little bit harder, but that doesn't mean there aren't deals out there and a whole lot more. As the Sunday Money Show continues this morning on the show, I'm joined in studio by Alan Small from the Alan Small Financial Group. Give him a call today. Get your money working for you, 416-332-3863, 416-332-3863. Contact information you can find out all about the company at his website, alansmall.com. I'm Ian Grant, and the Sunday Money Show continues on News Talk 1010. And we're back on this Easter Sunday morning edition of the Sunday Money Show. I'm Ian Grant. Thank you for joining us. Alan Small from the Alan Small Financial Group in studio this morning. And as I said, uh, to reach Alan, his phone number, 416-332-3863. All his information and a whole lot more on his website at alansmall.com. Two L's, alansmall.com. One of the things on the website you're having a lot of fun with, Alan, are the YouTube videos that you keep putting up there. And uh, you've mentioned that you're just in the process of producing a couple more.
1: Yeah, we are uh, going to to film or video uh, three new ones, uh, actually, as early as next week. So uh, different topics. So for those that are listening and would like to uh, have a look at the videos, uh, definitely on our YouTube channel, which you can access through my website. And there, these are a lot of fun. I like to get in there in front of the camera and just talk about different things that I think individual investors would find useful or helpful, or or you know want to learn about. And um, we try to pick uh, topics that individual investors have communicated to me that they either have concerns about, don't understand, um, or just you know find interesting. And so these, you know, uh, for me, as an example, I'm a very visual type of person. I rather see something, a video about something. I find I can I can understand it better, even more so than just picking up a piece of paper and reading about it. So, I find there are a lot of people like me that rather, you know, look at the video or watch the movie versus Mm -hmm. read the book, and uh, I think these videos really help those kind of people.
0: You know, just before the break we were talking about, um, or you were talking anyway, about how it is getting harder to find market bargains. As you mentioned, you know, they've climbed dramatically since the end of last year. That means, though, that in the big game of things, there were a lot of people got some pretty good deals at the end of last year. And it also doesn't mean for anyone who's listening, and I want to clarify this, that there aren't good deals to be found out there. You just have to maybe work a little bit harder.
1: Yeah, you know, I think a lot of people, a lot of individual investors have made quite a bit of money in this first quarter and I guess a few weeks, uh, almost the end of uh, April now, I guess. And uh, that, that says, you know, with the markets being at back at record highs, a lot of individual investors, if they had the stomach to get into this market at the end of last year, they've been handsomely rewarded. And as you say, even though the market is, let's say, fairly valued, I still believe there are a number of individual investments that you know, you should take a look at. And I guess that's also where the investment advisor comes into play. It is the job of your investment advisor, in my opinion, to find these good quality names for you, the investor. And, you know, when when things are falling and or the markets are just going up every day, uh, probably easy to pick something, you know, you could find something that's fallen quite a bit, buy it and it goes right back up. Or even when the market's on a roll and you just go into, you know, the first name that you find. But when, when we're at fair value where things are a little, you know, a little uh, sketchy, I guess, with respect to does this market continue to go higher? Will we see a bit of a pullback? Markets are up, you know, somewhere around 15% year to date does that mean we're going to be up 45% for the year? Probably not. At some point, the party will definitely slow down. And I think it's the role of the investment advisor to to guide the investor to, when that does happen, you know, what should you be in? What should you be invested in? And I think that is the job of the investment advisor to guide you during more difficult times in the market. You know, in last segment, we talked about the communication
0: that you, you pride yourself on in having with clients. And, you know, one of the things... Fear is basically based on ignorance. And one of the areas, especially when it comes to money, is people's discomfort at what's happening. They pick up a newspaper, they turn on the TV, and they hear all these stories. And that's why it is so vitally important for you to have that line of communication with your clients for exactly that reason so that you can explain to them what's happening out there, so that you can explain to them that no, it's not going to keep rising every single week. It's a
1: charted course, and we're on it, and things are okay. And you mentioned the word fear. You know, fear is, uh, I guess, is kind of interesting because people are most fearful. Back in December, for example, when the markets were at all-time lows, my clients and and I guess investors in general, there was a fear amongst them, and people were fearful. Well, in my opinion, that was the time not to be fearful because Mm -hmm. that was the time when you should have been buying up good quality names because they were extremely cheap. Contrarian, you have to be a contrarian now. I'm actually a little more fearful when the market's at all-time highs again. Now is the time where I am actually a little bit more fearful if I could use that word because things are a lot more difficult. It is a lot more difficult to find good quality names that I think will will take a, take the markets and take your portfolio or a portfolio to the next level. So when Everyone is fearful. I'm actually trying to be greedy and be happy and try mm. to find things to buy. And when everybody is euphoric and thinking everything is great, well, that's <laughs> the time when I'm a little fearful because it is great, but now try and find a good quality investment. Those investments are now quite expensive. And we've used that example before of walking
0: into the hardware store and everything is discounted by 60% and you walk out again because, you know, you're going to, you know, let's hang off for a couple of weeks until everything is is overpriced again and we'll buy it then. It's, it's a bizarre logic that people use when it comes to dealing with the markets if there's low there must be something wrong if there's low, that's the
1: time that you want to get in on this, especially if it's a good quality yeah. investment. Uh, you know, we, I always use the analogy of you walk into a store, you you know, you, you see a sweater on sale for for thirty percent off. You, you examine it, you make sure there aren't snags or holes or defects, and you think, wow, this is a great bargain. You go up and you buy it. Mm-hmm. Yet, when a stock or an investment in general is on sale for thirty percent, and it's a good quality investment, you still walk away because you're nervous that it's down thirty percent. Well. It, You know, it's it's the mentality of investors. They wait. They like to wait for investments to actually rise before they'll put money into it, which is probably the wrong thing to do. You want to see investments cheap. Buy low, sell high. We all know the saying, but how many have actually can do it? Yeah, and if someone calls you and says, you know what,
0: Alan, I have some money put aside. It's maybe time that uh, I started to get this money working for me as opposed to, you know, hidden in a box underneath my bed. I'm assuming that's a conversation that you would have with the people is obviously you're going to talk about their risk tolerance and you're going to talk about the options that are available to them. I mean, by no means are they going to get forced into an area they're uncomfortable with.
1: Yeah, and as the conversations that we have, we always talk about risk, time, horizon, what you want your money. Money to do for you? And it's sometimes it's a difficult conversation. I know when I ask that question, investors are quickly to say, well, I want my money to grow. Okay. Well, we all want our money to grow, I <laughs> guess. But in what capacity are we growing money for your retirement, save for your child's education, help pay your bills every month? Do we want to draw an income from your money, from your investments to help pay your bills? And for many of my clients, that's what I do. Money comes in in the form of dividends or interest, and then money goes out to pay their, their monthly bills. And, and by no means do I, you know, I want to, I guess, going back to the to, to the being the contrarian view. By no means am I saying try to time markets. You know, I definitely never try and time markets. That is a a, a foolish thing to try and do. And, and get, people like Warren Buffett will agree. But you want to make good decisions and buy things that are good quality and 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 cheap. And that is how you are going to be successful.
0: Tell you what, take a break, and when we come back, I want to talk about shorting Canadian banks. This is the Sunday Money Show here at In Depth Radio News Talk 1010. I'm Ian Grant. Alan Small is here today from the Alan Small Financial Group. Give his office a call at 416-332-3863, 416-332-3863. All the contact information available on his website, 2LsAllenSmall.com. Good morning. We are back, and this is the Sunday Money Show here on In-Depth Radio News Talk 1010. I'm Ian Grant. Alan Small is here this morning from the Alan Small Financial Group. Get your money working for you. Give his office a call at 416-332-3863. His website. Two L's, Um, You know what? For anyone who's joined us over the last half hour, Alan, why don't you do a quick introduction to the Alan Small Financial Group?
1: Sure. My name is Alan Small. I'm the Senior Investment Advisor of the Alan Small Financial Group, which is part of Hollis Wealth. And uh, simply put, our my job and the job of our uh, business is to help individual investors grow their portfolios to reach the goals that they set for themselves through investment, whether that be investing in in, in stocks or bonds or mutual funds or GICs or the full gamut of different investment ideas. Uh, We are a full-service firm, so basically we have access to pretty much all products with the exception of options. We Mm -hmm. do not uh, trade options at this time. And again, what we like to do, and and we talk about the Allen Small Difference quite often on, on the show, what we like to do is build portfolios specifically tailored to the needs of our clients in front of us. We don't have any pre-created portfolios. We don't have any proprietary products ourselves. So as broker, as a broker, I shop the industry to build the best portfolio I can for my investors. And we monitor those inve- investments on a regular basis. We're in contact with our clients, I would say every six to eight weeks or as often as we need to be, either through a general email, more specific to buy something, to sell something, to make a change. And that's what our clients, I believe, really like about us, that we are there for them whenever they need us. The Ontario government proposing
0: stricter regulations for financial planners and financial advisors by cracking down on individuals who are really not qualified to use those titles. I'm just curious, what questions should I ask when I'm looking for a financial advisor and when I'm sitting down for the first time with them? What what should I be asking them?
1: And that's a great question. We have talked about this before, and I think individual investors that what they want to do is they want to understand the advisors that's sitting across the table from them and I think you start with asking them what they're able to do for you. you know, what products do they have access to? Do they have their own products? So if you go to a, you know, a certain institution that has their own proprietary products, you need to know that because if they're going to recommend them, then maybe you'll understand why. Mm. At the same time, you want to know, do they have access to all products? Are they just able to sell mutual funds or GICs or insurance? Or can they sell everything? You know, For example, myself, I can you know, help someone with a, a life insurance policy I can build a portfolio of stocks or bonds or mutual funds for them. So we are more of the full service and you can check my website, it lists all the products and services I'm able to help individual investors with. So I think what you wanna do is get a feel for who the investment advisor is sitting across the table from you. And then I think that then from there, you can ask specific questions like, you know, what is your strategy? What did you do when times were tough back in 2008, back Hmm. at the end of last year? How do you manage money? What is your philosophy? These are questions you need to ask. I know, you know, when I hire the the services of someone in an industry that I don't understand, I ask a lot of questions and I think that's what everybody needs to do. I think part
0: of the challenge there though is not necessarily knowing what questions can be asked. You know, if I'm hiring a plumber, I don't know how to ask them how to fix, if they know how to fix the, I mean, I ask them to know how to fix the pipe, but I don't know all the intricacies because that's not my business. And we've talked before about if all your financial planner can do, for example, is sell mutual funds, you may be missing
1: out on a lot of areas that you're not even aware are, you know, available to you. Yeah. And I think that's a very good point. And, and I know in recently the government has been talking about you know, uh, your, what, what type of courses you've taken and, and, and your license and, and you know, how uh, how many courses you have, how many letters you have behind your name. And I really, in my opinion, I, I don't think that's as important as understanding the individual person or the advisor sitting across the table for you. How much experience do they have? Do they have their finger on the pulse of the markets? Hmm. I think to me, that is more important because we know, you know, I we know the government, their main goal with all this is they're trying to protect the individual investor. And I just believe that focusing on whether you have your CIM or your PFP or your FMA or, or whatnot, that helps because you want your advisor to be somewhat educated, of course, but I know a lot of people, you know, like to take Bernie Madoff. I'm sure he was very well-educated, but I, I think experience, I think understanding the markets, following the markets, really honing in on your craft. So maybe we should all be called investment advisors with a specialty towards or in, in so-and-so. Yeah. And I think maybe that's when people would understand more so who they're talking to. So for example, myself, I would call myself an investment advisor, a senior investment advisor with a specialty in portfolio management or, or portfolio creation and i think that's what cuz that's what i do the most although i can sell a life insurance policy or i can you know do a retirement plan for you I am often asked mostly about what to buy, what should go into your portfolio at this time. And so that tends to be what I do most often. And some might say they're more tax experts or they're more catered toward insurance. But at the end of the day, I think we're all investment advisors, And I think that title should stick with us. I don't know if the government's thinking of changing that, but I think that's important to know. We are investment advisors, our job is to advise on your investments and to guide you the best we can to have you reach your financial goals.
0: You know, whether we use the term financial advisor or investment advisor, whatever it is, from my experience watching listeners' reactions when we talk in public areas, there's a light that goes on for some reason when people use the term coach, because they can relate it to athletics, they can relate it to almost anywhere where, you know, the coach helps you be better than you think you can be. Yeah, they see the difference but it's really when you see the people's reaction to that term because that's exactly what you're doing you're coaching them, you're helping them, you're making them better and stronger financially than very possibly they ever figured they could be before they picked up the phone and called
1: Yeah I agree, I guess uh, being from the, the sports uh, world myself right. uh, obviously I coach uh, you know a few hockey teams and etc and I think uh, that's another great word, a financial coach or investment coach or, or I, I've used the term here on the show investment guide, sure. you know, I, I look at myself as a person to guide my uh, my clients, my investors to reach their financial goals. I am the guide. At the end of the day, the money is theirs. I'm just here to advise them on how to grow it or how to you know do whatever they want to do with it for their goals. But at the end, the final decision is always with the investor. And I always tell my clients that I'm here to tell you what I think we should do or what you should do, but it is you have to agree to it. And I think the more we can educate our investors and tell them, this is what we're doing. Yes. This is why we're recommending it, and what we—this is why we're doing it. This is what we intend this investment to do for you. Sometimes it doesn't work out, and I think the investor has to understand that, and, and you know, and manage that expectation. But really, this is how it should work. And knowledge is power. I think when, as an investor, if you have more knowledge of what you own, you're more comfortable what you own, and I think that's when you can make the decision to say, yes, Alan, please go ahead with that, or no, Mister Investment Advisor, can you make another recommendation? And I think that is the. Really good way to look at it. And it all comes back full circle to basically what we started talking about at the beginning of the show,
0: which was communication the communication with your clients and their communication with you that open conversation that's taking place not just once or twice a year, but, but an ongoing conversation so that everyone is aware where they stand, what their goals are, and everyone's working toward achieving that same goal.
1: I always say the number one word is trust and yeah. you know you want to work with someone you could trust and communication helps build trust honesty builds trust and transparency builds trust. And I think that is what the government is trying to to do or, or mm-hmm. help the industry. And they just have to be careful because, you know, sometimes it's difficult to paint everybody with the same brush. So you just have to really understand all the different types of advisors that are out there. And we just have to figure out how we can communicate to our clients mm-hmm. or investors why we're different and let the investor choose who they, who they want to work with. You're listening to the Sunday Money Show here on In-Depth Radio News Talk 1010. I'm Ian Grant,
0: and he is Alan Small from the Alan Small Financial Group. What stage of life are you at? Early on in your career path? Are you in your prime earning years or heading into or enjoying a worry-free retirement? Well, no matter where you find yourself, Alan can offer a custom investment portfolio for any stage and that word custom being very important. Give him a call today. Get your money working for you. It is the Alan Small Financial Group. Phone number 416-332-3863, 416-332-3863. Three, all his contact information and a whole lot more, including that YouTube video site, all available at his website, two Lsalensmall.com. We are back. This is the Sunday Money Show here on In-Depth Radio News Talk 1010. I'm Ian Grant. Alan Small from the Alan Small Financial Group in studio this morning. I want to get right to it because I promised to do it last segment. We got carried away talking about other stuff, but American money manager Steve Eisman, one of several people who've talked about shorting several of Canada's banks, saying that they weren't prepared for credit losses if the Canadian economy slows. Do you agree with his
1: concerns? Do you think the banks should be worried about Canadian household borrowing? I think everyone is concerned, from government to banks to everybody, about the level of of debt that the average Canadian is is holding right now. However, what, what this gentleman perhaps is not taking into account is how diversified our banks are today. We've seen, talk, or have heard talk about how many foreign investors have been shorting our banks based on these reasons, based on you know uh, housing market slowdowns, oil, uh, you know oil prices crashing, now high debt levels, and how they're going to affect our, our I guess our top five or six banks. Hmm. We've heard it before. We've seen the banks' stocks fall temporarily, just to go right back up down the road. So I'm believer I think if you short the banks uh, I think you could be in for for, for a bit of pain <laughs> should these banks start to rise again and and I think these banks as I said they're very resilient they've they've done a lot to to I guess diversify their business all our banks now and that CIBC as well have now expanded outside of our borders. We know yeah. Scotiabank has expanded Royal TD, uh, BMO in the U.S. quite heavily. And now even CIBC has now gone into the U.S. And and one step further, they're now bringing in more and more wealth management. They've expanded significantly into that wealth management area. So they're not only, or they're no longer just those institutions that we're used to that made money from lending money, whether mortgage or a line of credit. These institutions now have expanded Outside of our borders, they've expanded into wealth management. They are picking up that, that reoccurring revenue stream from wealth management and they're doing quite well and, and continuing to expand and get, become larger. So I, I, no, I, I don't agree with shorting the banks. I think banks are a great long position to have. So the opposite, you can pick up a very good dividend. You know, 5%, 4% dividend. You add another 5% growth onto that. And there's a 10% rate of return uh, in, in a period of 12 months. And I'm sure investors today would love to have a steady yes. 10% rate of return. You talk about the Canadian banks moving,
0: you know, abroad, the uh, United States. I'm just wondering, how are they doing in those other markets as
1: opposed to here at home? Well, I think, you know, we've, we've heard some markets, banks have actually exited those markets. So obviously they must have not been doing mm. so well. But down in the U.S., they're doing extremely well. Uh, TD uh, is expanded, they have more U.S. branches than they have Canadian branches. Wow. We know Royal Bank uh, recently over the last I think, year and a half or so expanded into California picking up a small, uh, high quality investment management or portfolio management boutique. So they're now managing money for a bunch of high net worth individuals at the small boutique out of California. So we're hearing more and more our banks expanding their business into good quality, uh, you know, portfolio management or wealth management firms And this is where the business is going. This is where the good quality business is going. And our banks are no different than anybody else. So I think, to answer your question, I think they're they're doing quite well in many of their endeavors. And obviously the ones they are not doing so well, they, they have exited over the past 12 months.
0: As always, if you're listening, you can send us a text message. It's 71010, regular texting rate supply. We don't get to it this show. We will certainly get to it on the next show. And just looking over at the text board, uh, Alan, th- th- I've never heard of this. Dutch Auction, a listener text. That they've received a notice that there is a Dutch auction on one of their stocks. It's about 28 bucks a share now. Apparently, they're offering to buy at the same. They're saying. I think I should sell. Am I right? They're saying they're new to this. Me too. What what is is a
1: Dutch auction? Yeah, so basically a Dutch auction is an auction whereby you know a price. There's a bid price, and I guess the seller has the opportunity at some point to to commit to 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 selling, and and until they're comfortable selling. So it's 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 just basically an auction to to buy the shares from their investors. And it's hard to answer that question as to whether they should sell or not. I don't know what the stock is. Don't know what the name of the stock is, but. I think you really want to take a look at the name whether or not a $28 per share price is is good value for that name or perhaps you know you should be selling it if you want to sell it on the open market. So really, you know, a lot of these times when when, when companies come in and try buy, try to buy back their own stock uh, or other institutions come in, financial institutions and try to buy stock of other individual investors, you really got to take a look at that at the price that they're offering to buy the stock at. Many In many instances, that price is not fixed until the end of the month, and they take an average cost, etc., whereas you could probably sell it on your own for a better price. Or you may not want to sell it, because this right. could be a stock that would go up in the future. So tough to advise his client, because I'm just not sure what that stock is, so perhaps they can text in and let me know what the stock is, Good. and I can uh, better advise 71010, the number to text in. During our
0: last show, we were talking about Uber and Lyft and all that kind of thing. I got a text message then that I didn't get to, but I, I wanted to follow up on it, because the person asked the same question. I was Wondering when Uber enters the market, will it drive the price of Lyft down because Uber is so large?
1: It could happen, and it actually for it could actually already be happening because we know Uber just filed for their IPO recently, and so many individual investors uh, they may not be as interested in Lyft and will be waiting for Uber. There's only so much money to go around, sure. and so it definitely would affect uh, you know Lyft investors. But I think Lyft shares and the reason why they've fallen so much from their, you know, their IPO price, or $72. They came onto the market, they rose quickly to $80. And uh, recently, they've been down into the high 50s, low 60s. I think one of the reasons behind that is short sellers, people betting that this stock is definitely not worth the valuation that it went public at. And... In many cases, short sellers aren't able to come in so early and short a stock. And what does a shorting a stock mean? Betting the stock is gonna fall. So they want the stock to go down and that's how they make money. Um, and so, some in a lot of cases, you can't short a stock, bet that it's gonna fall. Right away, you have to wait a period of time before short sellers are allowed to to do that. In this case, short sellers were allowed to come in very quickly, and that's what they did. They looked at Lyft, they looked at how much money it's making, they looked at if it's making any money at all, they looked at you know how much their expenses are, and they quickly realized that hey, maybe this is not the greatest investment to be into uh, based on that information. Now, I'm far uh, from an expert. That would have been exactly my take on it too. Lyft to me feels like a company Uber will buy, and and, and quite possible. And you know, right now there's a duopoly and you know, could there be a monopoly at some point? So the question becomes, is this a good quality investment? I guess to many individual investors, it's not as good and they've shorted the stock. The stock has fallen in value and now many people are wondering, okay, do we buy into Lyft at these prices or do we wait for Uber to go public? Maybe put our eggs in that basket instead. What would you do? That's a great question. I, I've been more partial to Uber than Lyft. Obviously, I, I actually use the Me Uber too. service. Me yeah, too, exactly. Uh, I don't use Lyft, so I guess I'm a little more partial to Uber. I'll have to see where the, the stock starts trading at, see if I can get any shares at the IPO price. Probably not, very difficult. I'm sure it'll be oversubscribed yeah, so. uh, by a number of times. So we'll have to see where the price opens up. I always say, maybe wait a few days, see where the dust settles, and then maybe you know see at that point. Check out the text board, 7-10-10, 7-10-10. <laughs> With your comments, we don't get to
0: them this show. We'll certainly put them aside, get to them uh, during our next one. But um, quite a bit of discussion of late about raising the retirement age. And there's a question here, Alan, what is your take on raising that retirement age?
1: I think raising retirement age it can work in some some to some degree, and another that I don't agree with. So, for example, if you want to raise the 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 age limit for for mandatory uh, RSP conversion to a ref. So, right now, when you turn 71, you have to convert your RSP into a registered income fund, mm-hmm. and then start drawing money from that account at age 72. Well, if you want to increase that to 75, I'm all for that because. Individual investors still have the flexibility to convert your RSB into a RIF at any age. You could do it at 60, 65, whenever you like. So there's flexibility there. And you know me, I'm all for flexibility. Changing the, the age for CPP and OAS... I'm not so sure that will benefit anybody. I, I think, again, maybe the government, because now people might defer a little longer, there's more money there for sure. them to be able to use, because we know government is running out of money into the, in these plans. They say that they have enough money to fund these pensions for many years to come, but I think that, that that's a bit of a worry there. So a lot of individual investors that I know, when they turn of retirement age, whether it's 65, 67, 62, They say to me, Al, you know, I've paid into CPP for so many years. I want to start getting my money back now. I don't want to wait. I don't know what the future brings. What if I'm not here at... 85 or 75, I want to start getting my money now. And so many people have communicated that to me. So I think the government has to be very careful. You know, have a flexible plan, have something that is flexible, that people can opt into or out of, take their money when they want after a certain age. I think that is the best course. Flexibility, transparency, as I always say, is the key. And so I'm not so sure these new rules that they're discussing uh, will benefit Uh, A lot of people, they might benefit some, but I don't know if they'll benefit all. You know, and it's something we've talked about so many times is that so many
0: listeners seem to believe that fiscal responsibility is about holding everything aside until you retire, and at that point, then you can buy your coffee again, and you can start buying the little things in life. And boy, you know, your point is so good. You know, you never know if you're going to hit 65 or 75. So, you know, the fiscal responsibility is about a balance. It's about looking forward responsibly but also living your life in the present.
1: Balance is key. I always say balanced diet for your, for your health is key. And, and a balance in life is key. You, you want to live life today you know you're only 50 years of age once or 35 years right. old or 65 you're only your age once in life and you want to enjoy it but at the same time whatever you don't need to enjoy your life presently you can save for yeah, your future for and i think that is key so you want to to live the lifestyle you want to live at any age but then whatever you don't need today put aside for your future, because one of the things that you don't want to have happen is for you to come one day and say, wow, I'm running out of money, and I'm going to outlive my money. So live for today, but save for the future, because that is extremely important. I think it's a great way to wrap up, because we're out of time. Well, thank you. Alan Small, thank you very much. As always, a great
0: hour. What stage of life are you at? If you are early on in your career path, if you're in your prime earning years, or if you are heading into or enjoying that worry-free retirement, no matter where you find yourself, Alan can offer a custom investment portfolio for any stage. Give him a call today and get that money working for you. It is the Alan Small Financial Group. His number is 416-332-3863, 416-332-3863. Contact information and a whole lot more at his Website 2Ls, I'm Ian Grant, and this has been the Sunday Money Show, a News Talk 1010.